0: you, choir. It's a blessing. Um, well, amen. If you're going to be reading um, through your, your, your personal Bible or on your uh, iPhone, we're going to read a few minutes from uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 uh, through 27. Uh, you know, one of the things we notice as we start moving through um, uh, the book of Matthew here um, is that um, God is doing something uh, very special through Israel, uh, to and for the world. It's ultimately always connected to the promises that God made to Abraham to bring salvation to the nations through his uh, Abraham seed. And we know the seed is Jesus. So we often say the whole Bible is all about Israel, and Israel is all about Jesus. And, and uh, so Jesus is the sort of the perfect fulfillment of Israel's story. On the one hand, he is God. He speaks and he acts on behalf of Israel's God. He's Yahweh on the mountain, giving his law to his disciples. But on the other hand, he is also perfect and true Israel. He lives out Israel's response. He perfectly... Keeps God's law and it's and its active obedience, which means he keeps it perfectly, obeys it, and it's passive obedience, he received the full weight of its judgment upon himself. We need both of those in our salvation. And so he's true Adam, he is true Israel, he's the true teacher, prophet, priest, and king. And he's even the true Moses. It is sort of the uniqueness of his mission. That's going to sort of dictate a discipleship that's going to demand that many people who follow him actually get up and follow him. That's what we're going to see as we move through the gospel. Follow me, and they get up, and they, and they go. Disciples Peter and Andrew, they're working and fishing, and Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. He walks further down the Sea of Galilee and he sees John and James. He says, Follow me. And they got up, they left their boats, and they left their father, and they followed him. He sees Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. And he says, Follow me. And he gets up and he follows. Uh, Philip, the same way. Follow me, and Philip follows. A couple, John the Baptist has a couple disciples. We think one of them was probably John the disciple. And he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And the two disciples got up and said, we're going to follow him. And you see this throughout the gospel story. Now, since then, since the time of his death and his resurrection... We follow him by ultimately following his word. We abide, we dwell in, we live within his word. And so the people call followers you don't actually see after the book of Acts, uh, 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 after the Gospels, which is a little bit in the Acts. Um, but the, when you get to the Gospel, it's believers and it's saints and there's other kinds of ways of talking about those who follow Jesus. Jesus, during the time of his earthly incarnation, when he was God in the flesh, he, he was an itinerant preacher. And so, even to, uh, and his job was to to take the gospel and and to bring the message to Israel. It's kind of their last chance. And so, one Canaanite woman wants to come up and have a blessing from him. And he says, Look, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And later, he would send the disciples out and he would say, Listen, don't go the way of the Gentiles, don't even go into the Samaritan cities, but instead, you go to the lost sheep of Israel. And so Jesus is like the true Moses, just like true Moses. He comes down off the mountain. We saw this last week. He's touching lepers and cleansing them. He speaks to the centurion, a a, a Gentile, on behalf of a paralyzed servant and and heals the paralyzed servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He's doing a, a bunch of wonderful miracles. And it says he's casting out demons. He's healing all who are ill. And this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. He himself took our weaknesses and carried away our diseases. And so we start seeing this growing understanding and even elaboration of what it really means to enter the narrow gate. The poor in spirit are ultimately like the leper, who can are is odious in God's eyes and in man's. He's like the Gentile without hope in this world. We're like the paralytic. We can't do anything for ourselves. We're we're sick. We need healing. That's what the poor in spirit are. And even at one time, John the Baptist, he sends his disciples, when he's been in prison, he sends his disciples, he says, ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? Is there something fundamentally different to come than you that we ought to be looking to? He says, they tell John the Baptist this, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, The poor, and you can read the poor in spirit, have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense or stumble over me. And we would ask, who would take offense at this? He's just raising everybody up and he's bringing life. But we're told in the Gospel of John, there is a time when he does this incredible miracle, he feeds the multitudes, and he starts talking a little bit about It's not all about what I did here. It's who I am. And as he starts talking about who he is, people start peeling away from him. They start saying he's not. And it says that even his disciples started grumbling about him. And then finally he said some things and says a lot of those who were his disciples just withdrew from him. We're not following him anymore. Disciples. And so this is going to bring us to our text today. One man said, you're going to get some lessons here on how not to follow Jesus. Well, that's okay. I understand that. But Jesus is going to begin. He's done some miracles, but now he's going to talk a little bit more about who he is and reveal that. And that's going to become an issue. And so if you will stand with me, if you are able, we are going to pray. And then we are going to read from Matthew chapter 8. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we gather together, to, gather together with you, even as the disciples of old called to follow. We follow the word. We follow Jesus through his word. And we ask, Father, that you would um, make, our, make our understanding, that understanding is going to grow through all eternity. We pray that we grow even today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 8, starting verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have the air uh, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Church, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God it stands forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, amen. would you please be seated? Jesus, obviously, you would think, I mean, it would be fully expected that he would be drawing a crowd. And he gives orders for them to go ahead and depart across the sea. Now, Jesus is known to withdraw from time to time, often with his disciples, for rest, for prayer, and to interact with just them alone. Mark tells us in his account of this, he says that Jesus gave orders... For them to let's go ahead and depart to the other side. But then he says something strange. It says, They took him along with them just as he was. And and most of the commentators think that in some sense they know boats, they know what's going on, they know what's happening, and they're kind of taking control of things. And taking him just as he was probably indicated that he was in a pretty um, um, serious state of weariness, of of, um, being tired. And so they're getting ready to get into the boat. And as they get into the boat, um, a couple of disciples come up there and have some questions before they get on the boat. And uh, they're they're going to bring questions that I think we would all kind of maybe ask at some point um, or that we might say. But uh, it reveals something about what it means to follow Jesus. And so Matthew 8.18 says... Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he said, let's go ahead and get, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And then let's go on to 19 and 20. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have their holes, the birds have the air of, the, uh, of the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, a scribe was a teacher of the law. They were copyists. They would um, um, focus on the law of God. When I say the law, I mean the law of God. And they're very often associated with the Pharisees. Now, some of them were also associated with the temple. But by and large, they were closely um, closely were, were dealt with um, and were used by the Pharisees. Um, this scribe, as we're going to see, is ultimately seen as a disciple. Now, when we say disciple here, because we, we often think of the 12, we think of the women, we think of some of the others. Um, but by this time, you ought to see it as sort of a really broad term. It's beyond just the 12 and a few others. It's people who are more, se- they're, they're, they're more serious about Jesus, um, and, and, they, and they're more curious than, than just the people who are just curious and needy, the crowd as a whole. At some point, they were having a real interest in Jesus, And they apparently followed him a fair amount. Some stayed with him. Others would go home and come back. But they followed him for a good deal of time. And they were very open to him as a teacher, as a prophet. Maybe even the Christ, the Messiah. We're given the name of some of them. We're told that after Judas had gone to his reward, um, that they had to have another apostle fill his place. And they said, we have to take it from among a group of people who had been with us since the preaching of John the Baptist and had witnessed the resurrection of Christ. That's three to three and a half years. Now there are others who had probably been part of that time, but among this group that was going to be an apostle that takes Judas' place, they had to be there. And they actually gave two names. There are probably more, but they gave two names. They gave a guy named Joseph, who's also called Justice, and a guy named Matthias, and they put him forth and they chose one. We're told later at the end of the Gospels there are a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus and one of them were actually given the name is Cleopas. And some things that he was related in some ways um, possibly to one of the many Marys that followed Jesus. And we saw earlier that there were many disciples who did grumble and eventually left him. And so that's a pretty wide spectrum of people with various levels of commitment towards Jesus. And so this scribe, he doesn't appear to be as often they are challenging Jesus. Some have said, well, he just calls him a teacher. Well, a lot of people call him teachers, even the disciples at some point. But at least in his own mind, he's open to what he thinks Jesus is. He says, teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. That was not unique for people to say things like that. Peter, the apostle says, "Um, listen, even if I have to die, I'll never deny you. How did that work? And by the way, it said all the disciples said the same thing. Thomas, at one point when Jesus was getting ready to go to Bethany because he had heard Lazarus had died. um, The the apostle said, you can't go to Judea. They're looking to kill you. And Jesus said, I've got to go. Thomas says, "Okay, let's all go that we might die with him. And forevermore, he's been known as Thomas, full of faith man. Right. But Jesus, on his part, understood the heart of man. Again, in John chapter 2, we have this, I believe, up, up above here on verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. There are people who believe to some extent. And they saw the signs that he was doing. And that would make you a believer. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So he knows what we're like, and he knows all kinds. Of, he know he knows who Judas is, and he knows who Matthias is and Peter, he knows all their weaknesses, and he knows the people that are pushed on through, and those that are he knows those things, he knows what's in humanity. I think we all know that. And so this disciple comes forward to him, the scribe, and he says, Look, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And uh, he says his answer is the foxes have their holes. The birds have nests, but the Son of Man, nowhere, there's nowhere for him to lay his head. Now, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. This was his mission. His mission was never to have really a home base. I mean, he was in Capernaum a lot, but he was always moving around. And a lot of people look at that and they go, that that would be a rough form of discipleship. You all know what it's like to be away from your home and just so so glad to be back after two weeks. Imagine you just don't have that. People those days love their home as much as we love ours, a place of, of, of permanence, of security. But I don't think the first part is what really grabbed him until he hears the second part. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that, as a scribe, would have rung in his mind. Let's bring up Daniel chapter 7. And this comes out of... Daniel, when Daniel sees this, of course, from Daniel's perspective, he sees this massive turmoil of the the oceans bubbling, and out of it come the the, the demonic nations that would oppress Israel, and that's where the demons come, and all that kind of thing. But nonetheless, he then sees God stand up and uh, come and set up his court. There's going to be judgment. The, The people of God, the saints are being persecuted. In the midst of this, we have Daniel, chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be pass away. And his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. That's what they're looking for in the Son of Man. It's very much this great superhuman messianic figure who is not going to have any place to put his head. Please note that we talked about the disciples who grumbled and then many of them stopped to walk with him anymore. Moving from grumbling to leaving him, Jesus had turned to them and said... What, what, are you, what are you going to say if I told you that one day you're going to see the Son of Man ascending to the Father? And at that point, they said, this is enough. And they walked away. One of the things Jesus does is he certainly challenges, he certainly reorders the expectations that we have of him. I don't think this scribe in any way was insincere. But he might have been blinded by ignorance, as everybody had at this point, and overconfidence. If this scribe would have trouble at the itinerary nature of our Lord's mission, the humility of it, and yet still being the son of man that has dominion over all the nations, how much more when he came up against the cross and the son of man. We know we really want Jesus to be what we think he should be, but we have all learned by this time he is not tame. He is something greater than we ever think he should be. How did the scribe respond? We don't know. I mean, I assume maybe he walked off. Don't know that. Wouldn't it be great to see him in heaven one day? Would he be like Peter and the others who said, we have left everything to follow you? Or would he be more like the rich young ruler? He went away when Jesus said, you have to sell everything and come with me, follow me. He said he had so much, and so he went away very sad. I'm not given that. But it's almost as picture is that Jesus says, okay, let's go ahead and go across. And he's tired, and they're getting ready to get in the bed and uh, get in the boat. And one man comes up, I'll follow you. And he has to say, listen, da, da, da. But you throw oh, by the way, this is the first, man, th- that son of man is Jesus' father own favorite self-designation. This is the first time in Matthew it comes out. So you, you, everybody would have heard that. What does this mean? But it's almost like there was another guy there who heard that, and it means he doesn't have a home, and he understands that, but he's ready to push on. And so we come to Matthew 8, verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples, and this is why we think the scribe was a disciple, it says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So he hears them, okay. And he says, okay, well, let me go and take care of business at home. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, most think this doesn't mean that his father had just died because he would be there dealing with that. They think this is probably a way of speaking. His father was aged. He might be alive a few months, a few years. Didn't know. But he needed to go home, take care of the family, honor his mom and dad, his father here in this case take care of the burial when it happened, deal with the inheritance and all the rest. I think one commentator thought that maybe this was sort of a jab at him because he was interested in his inheritance more than the kingdom. But you don't get any of that. Jesus doesn't seem to be really rebuking him. He's just informing him of what discipleship is all about. But his answer was, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, now, y'all have the situation where you've, someone who's probably smarter than you has said something to you, and you don't really know what it means, but you know it's not nice. I definitely had a sister like that. You know, I had two sisters, so they don't know which one I'm talking about, but they do. Always smarter than us. Okay. Um, that's, that has a feel about this. I mean, this is absolutely shocking is what he's saying here. I mean, you know, Jesus would say shocking things. You know, um, rather than lust, it's better to tear out one of your eyes. Rather than putting your hand to evil works, touching the unclean, it's better to c- uh, cut off your right hand. It's, it's better to go, you know, go into eternity without these parts of your body than the whole body going into hell. I mean, he would know how to shock. He would not expect them to go out and do those things. And there's certainly something of this. He's not advocating disrespect to parents. Remember, one of the strongest arguments with the Pharisees was you teach people to dishonor their parents pretending they're honoring God. So he's not teaching this chronic um, um, disrespecting of parents. But his ministry is unique. And he's using it, these apostles and disciples and followers are to instruct all of us in some things. He's using that which is of the highest honor and greatest expectation to enlighten followers as to the meaning and the cost of true discipleship. So, what does it mean? Something is like an idiom. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Well, they, all, they both know what they're doing, and they, they come together up here somewhere. But we know what it means. Don't, sh- don't blow your trumpet when you give and you do good works and all those kind of things. It, it, it comes across. And something is just an idiom. But others think that probably the best argument or best description of it is basically let this world that is spiritually dead deal with the dead. This is all about life. And yes, even though that's lawful and a good thing to do, this is something that transcends even that. Something greater than death is here. Jump on board now while you can. You know, we have an Old Testament story. All of these are related to things in the Old Testament. When Elijah, the prophet, is to call Elijah, the next generation, his successor, and he sees him in a field, and he's plowing, and he takes his cloak, his mantle, and he puts it on his shoulder. And that's like saying, you're going to be my successor, the young prophet to be, Runs after him and says, please, let me first go home and kiss my mother and my father. Let me say goodbye, set things in order. And Elijah says, sure. I mean, got to do that. He goes home. He has a big barbecue. He makes everybody, he informs everybody what's going on. He fixes things at the home and then says he rises up and follows Elijah. That's good if you're the prophet of God. But for Jesus, there's something bigger than Elijah. Here, It is the real son of man. He transcends every obligation in life. Paul said he counted, even suffered all things lost that he might gain Christ. Later, Jesus, when he sent those disciples out and he told them to go to the lost sheep of Israel, he said, remember this. If anyone loves their father or their mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Which sounds incredibly insensitive and arrogant. Unless you're the son of man, if maybe the scribe was too quick to profess his allegiance, maybe this disciple would be too slow to follow. He's actually invited. Did he go? We just do not do. We don't know. But then the last little picture we see here this is a great storm. Let's read Matthew eight twenty three through twenty seven. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went, and they woke him, and they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O men of little faith? O you of little faith? Then he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea Obey him. He gets on the boat, and here's the third use of that word followed. These guys follow him. And I think we're supposed to kind of see that. One said, What does it mean? I'll follow you. The other, he says, You follow me. Not sure on either one of these, but these men got on the boat. We are told that there are also other boats there that probably a number of people got on. The coming storm would probably have separated them all off, and we look at one of the boats. Certainly what happened in that storm was anticipated by the story of Jonah. You could not miss Jonah's story in it. Jonah uh, um, uh, factors very much in the ministry of Jesus. Jonah gets on a ship. It's a bigger than a boat. He's out on the Mediterranean Sea at this time. There's a great storm. He goes to sleep in the hold of the ship. But of course, he's running from God's purposes in his life. He's not running to them as Jesus is. And the men do, they cry out to their gods, they do all the things you were supposed to do, and they find him down there, and they say, pray to your God, maybe he cares that we are perishing. Well, Jonah, that's not going to work, because he's the problem here. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it'll calm. And they resisted for a while, but finally they said, we've got to do it. They throw him in the sea, and it says that the sea stopped raging. And now we see a story that's very similar to this, but something greater than Jonah is here. This great storm starts. It says literally the great storm is a, it's a, it's a shaking. It's a, we get the word um, seismic from. It's a Greek word that we get the word seismic from. And, and it means earthquake. It's almost like an earthquake is happening here. And I think Matthew's trying to tell us something because Matthew uses this word three times and nobody else uses it this way. of no, the other gospel, they all do other things. He uses it here. He uses it when Jesus dies on the cross and he cries out. And when he cries out, there, there, there is an earthquake and all kinds of interesting things happen, which you're going to hear about when we get to that part in Matthew. But then one of the centurions or a number of the centurions look at him, they go, they see the earthquake, it says, and they go, hmm, this surely is. The Son, or this was surely the Son of God. And then three days later in the resurrection, when the angel of the Lord descends from heaven and he rolls away the stone and he sits upon it, there was an earthquake. And so Matthew wants us to see these events, that as Jesus goes into his sleep, that he is really anticipating the coming sleep that he's going to go into death and the resurrection that is going to shake the world and the nations. The boat gets covered in waves. The disciples are terror, terrified. They cry out, Lord, save us, we die. Mark says, they also said, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he stands up, he speaks the word, and there's just a great calm that happens. The calm that is Jesus in his sleep becomes the calm in their world. And they asked the question, what kind of man is this? I would have wondered what kind of man he was that could stay asleep while the water was washing over him. But that was, you know. And the question very well sums up Matthew's purpose, I think. Who is this Jesus? And you could really ask the question starting with the Sermon on the Mount, moving through the miracles, the questions the, the, the two disciples had, and now this. Who is he and how do we follow him? The man cleanses lepers, he speaks, and paralyses are healed, he raises the dead. He's the divine Son of Man, given dominion, glory, and everlasting kingdom. But he's wandering through Israel with no place to call home, and he demands an allegiance that transcends our most precious duties in this life. Greater than Elijah, greater than Jonah, and literally, heaven and earth are at his command. Jesus reproves them of their little faith. Elsewhere, little faith says you can move mountains. So I don't think little means it's small and it's a mount. Um, I think the commentators think it's impoverished. What you expect at this time. And I don't think this is a hard rebuke. They do get in the boat. But which of us wouldn't be afraid in the midst of this? Think about your prayers, how they often sound. Lord, help. We say this of them. They know... To whom to cry out? And they asked the right question. They didn't look within themselves to find, are we going to have great faith? They looked to the object of their faith and they asked the right kinds of questions. The way I read Matthew, I think this is probably the beginning of their discipleship. Up to this point, they've heard teaching, they've seen miracles. They've heard some questions going back and forth, what it means to follow. They all overheard that. They all got on the boats, and now they're saying, "This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's like having the Son of Man in your midst. Even if he looks like he is checked out, he hasn't. He's in every way in control. And even when the world rages around you, he is still Lord. He really does, as the writer of Hebrews says, uphold all things by the word of his power, even when he's asleep. And the interesting thing, this lesson that I think we're all moving through never ends, because this is really what faith is all about. This is the beginning of what their discipleship, and think we all can, how many times later he's going to say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? But what's the last things he says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I'm sending you out into the nations. I'm sending you out where all the storms are, where all the demonic nations come out, the demons are. You're going out there, disciple the nations, and the last thing he tells them, Behold or lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Church, it's the promise of God. It's in the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We're very much these disciples. We, by, by being here in many ways, we, we profess we will follow you wherever you take us. And your word takes us in some very interesting places. And yet you're always telling us also that you are the ultimate commitment. And all commitments come under that. And that you are with us in the midst of every storm. And although sometimes you, it appears you, you're, you're asleep, we know you're not if you've not lost control, that you really do care. Ask that, we ask that you help build our faith. Our impoverished faith becomes a stronger faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.